It is a joy and honor to be here. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Let's begin in prayer. Can you turn me down a little bit? I feel a little hot up here in more ways than one. Um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. Uh, thank you for sending Jesus and that he, he spoke to us. Uh, his words comfort and they challenge and they, uh, they do things to us inside and they are transformative and empowering and we want to hear from you, Lord Jesus, uh, this morning. So help me be faithful and give your people ears uh, to hear and receive what you are saying. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. So you guys have been in the Gospel of Mark for a while, and sometimes when we read the Gospels, things come alive for us, right? Our, our hearts are awakened, and we're excited, and we're, we're challenged. We, we see the power of Jesus doing things, and we're like, that's just awesome. And, or we, we hear his teaching, and we are challenged and convicted we see the difference in our life to the life that he's, uh, he's sharing and calling us to. And it, it does things in us, and it's powerful and encouraging. And other times we read it, and it feels like there's this great disconnect, right, if we're really honest. Sometimes what's talked about in the gospel seems really foreign to our experience. We read about works of power and miracles, or even the manifestation of the demonic and we just don't know how to relate, right? Perhaps maybe it's just, oh, that stuff happens over in the mission field somewhere far away, but not in Portland, Oregon. Or, or maybe it's just a category we just kind of put it in that, oh, that happened back then, and that doesn't happen today. Or, or maybe some of you, you might even kind of put it in the category of religious myth and just say, well, modern science has disproved this. I don't take it seriously. Whatever the reason, when our everyday experience stands in contrast to what we read in the scriptures and the gospels, it creates a disconnect in our lives, doesn't it? Right? We might hold our orthodox beliefs about Jesus and the afterlife and miracles and, and the spiritual world and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform people, and we put it in a little box of our faith commitments. But then we go about our everyday lives, right? and living often in the natural. And I think in this way of living, we, we end up relying on the securities and comforts that our society and our culture gives us, right? We have insurance. We have doctors. We have medication, right? We can feel really comfortable because we have money in our savings account, or for some of us, credit cards. Um, but either way, if we want it, we can, we can usually find ways to get it. And we might not admit it, but our actual day-to-day -day and minute-by-minute -minute living, it doesn't always feel like we really need God or are relying on God in those moments. And so our text this morning in Mark 6 is a powerful antidote to the spiritual sedatives that our materialistic culture is so often trying to feed us. Our text is going to challenge us to purposely step into a place that will make us feel uncomfortable and maybe even vulnerable for the sake of the gospel. 
But that shouldn't be too strange for us, right? Because we didn't follow Jesus to be comfortable, right, and safe, did we? Right? We followed Jesus because, as the disciple said, he's the only one with the words of eternal life. Right? If you follow Jesus, he called you to himself and you rose up and followed him. You heard that invitation from Matthew 11 where he says, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Right? We heard that invitation and we came to him. But in doing that, in receiving that invitation of welcome, he also warned us, didn't he? And if you've read your Bible and you read the Gospel of Mark, you know in Mark 8 he says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. But if you're following Jesus today, that didn't turn you away, did it? Instead, it probably exhilarated your heart because you knew that there was more to live for than wealth and comfort and status and independence and human approval or even retirement, right? There's so much more to live for. And so you followed him. Is that your story? I hope it is. So just as Jesus called his first disciples, he's calling you and me. I'm doing a little background here before we get to Mark 6. In Mark 3, verse 13 through 15, he describes our identity and purpose as a people called and sent by God. So I'm going to read that in Mark 3.13. This is the first calling of the disciples. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So, this is supposed to be a mission sermon. I'm the new missionary in residence, and I've been asked to talk to you about God's mission. But I want you to hear me on this. Mission is not first about what we do or where we go. It's first about who we are. If there is a lack of faithful and fruitful mission in our lives, it's first and foremost an identity issue and not a, a ministry issue. Right? Jesus doesn't need us to get his work done. You see that in this text. He doesn't need you, he doesn't need me to save the world or build his church. But look what it says. It says here that he wants us with him. He called his first disciples, he said it to them, and he says it to us. I desire you to be with me. Right? Let that sink in. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. <laughs> and it's inextricably tied that that desire, his desire to be with us and have us with him is tied with his purpose for us. That you and I might be sent by him to bring his message of hope and freedom to the world. So to think of it in a Trinitarian way, the Father was with the Son. And in that overflow of love, the Father sends the Son into the world so that you and I might be with him. 
And now in that overflow of love, in our witness with Jesus, we get to go out from him by the power of the Spirit and to bring others into that relationship. So just like Pastor Ben prayed, we are a loved people, we are a desired people, and we are a sent people. We gotta get that identity piece right first before we can talk about doing mission. And if you're here and, and you're not sure if, if those, those invitations that Jesus gave where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If, if you're not sure if you've received that or if you haven't, if that doesn't describe you, <laughs> you're in the right place. Like, this isn't just the place for those that have arrived. In fact, we read the Gospel of Mark, and, and it's kind of easy to feel good about yourself when you compare yourself to the disciples, right? And, and you see their issues, and you realize that they weren't totally sure about Jesus as they were following him. And they were on this journey of faith, of faith along with him. And for some of them, we don't, we're not really sure. When, when did you actually commit yourself to Jesus? Was it Pentecost? Was it before? We don't know. And you might not know. But if you're in that, on that path and journey, you're in the right place. So let's read together now in Mark chapter 6. Start in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then you can jump ahead to see the final conclusion to this in verse 30. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So that's our text. And now is where I hope to challenge that level of comfort in our lives just a bit, and for some of us, a whole lot. So I think you can see it in that text, right, that that disconnect that we talked about earlier, it kind of creeps in. For most of us, I think we would say that we've never traveled to another city without any money and without any change of clothes, right? And you probably haven't gone and knocked on random doors of strangers who you've never met, right, and stayed with them and shared the gospel and prayed for the sick who were healed and cast out demons, right? That's probably not many of our normal experiences. It's not so much that we don't think that can happen, right? right? I'm sure all of us know missionaries that have sacrificed a lot and done great things and given up much and gone out in faith to do some of these things. But still, right, it's not a part of our everyday experience. And in fact, as I thought about this, I think that we might respond in a, in a funny way to someone who just kind of said to us, you know, I think God's calling me to hitchhike to a random town I've never been to and knock on a bunch of doors, uh, not bring any money or extra clothes or food, and I'm just going to share Jesus and trust that people are going to take care of me. And I'm going to do it for a month. 
you know, we would probably say, I don't know about that. You should go talk to your pastor. Like, like that doesn't sound very safe. It sounds kind of foolish, right? I mean, it's too risky. We're, we're, we're supposed to provide for ourselves, aren't we? Right? No, I, I mean, what if no one invites you in? What if the wrong person invites you in, right? This is, this is not what seems like a really good plan. Um, or maybe, right, if I just said, hey, is your missionary in residence, they've asked me to help design our mission strategy. So here it is. We're going to send short-term mission teams. Actually, we're going to send the youth group to hitchhike to Mexico. And they're going to just knock on doors and trust God to provide for all of their needs. And, and then they'll come back whenever, well, maybe a week or a month, and, and we'll get to hear the great stories of how God provided for them. You would probably be sending one of those emails to Pastor Ben, right? Who's this hippie, and where did you find him? Like, is that honest? Am, am, I, just, am I exaggerating? This, is, this feels kind of strange to our experience. So, lest Ben get too many of those emails tomorrow, let, let's first talk about how not to apply the text, okay? It's important to see that the sending of the 12 is not normative for how the disciples lived their lives on a day-to-day basis, right? It's not normative. They, they normally had extra pairs of clothes and some money. and like, So it's not normative for how they normally live their life. It, it was kind of a short-term mission trip of sorts. In fact, it was a very particular learning experience <clears throat> that Jesus created for his disciples. In the Gospel of Luke, he does it actually twice, once for the 12 and then again for a group of 72 disciples. And also, right, if you read the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, you see no mention of these particular requirements, right? You can't have these things, you can't bring these things with you. Um, it's, it's just a general call to make disciples of all nations. And so, this, is not a pas- this passage is not our primary mode of ministry and disciple-making. Okay, so we can a- agree on that. <gasps> Take a... Take a, a, deep, a, a deep breath. Fair enough, right? But with all that said, we know that Jesus did send out every one of his disciples in this way, right? And if you read through the book of Acts and you know about the early church, you know that this pattern of going out two by two and of relying on the hospitality of other people is a normal pattern for the disciples and for the early church. Now, some of you might be saying, oh, 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 but I read my Bible. Paul the Apostle, he worked. He's a good American. He worked hard. He didn't rely on anyone else. Mm. Yeah, but the whole fact that he talks about that and emphasizes that makes my point because he was an exception to that general practice of relying on the hospitality of the churches and even of the the God-fearers in the communities that they went to. So we can't entirely say, well, this just doesn't apply to us. So I'm going to ask a question. Could it be that a risk-taking venture, similar to what's illustrated in this passage, is exactly what our faith needs to break out of that lethargy and materialism of our culture? Could it be that that is something that God would be calling you to? or want to be doing in your life, no matter your age 
or stage in your life. So I thought it'd be helpful, inspiring, challenging to share some, some stories, okay? So first one, it's the story of going cross-country for Jesus. If you haven't done it already, ask Pastor Daniel about his cross-country bicycle escapades, um, where with a, a close brother in the Lord, he went by bicycle, not motorcycle, about 2,000 miles from Phoenix, Arizona, up to Ely, Minnesota. Took about a, a month with a brother in the Lord to pray for the nation and to share the gospel wherever they went. And sometimes they slept under bridges, and sometimes they were invited into homes and had tremendous opportunities to experience the provision and hospitality that God provides as well as opportunities to share the gospel. Okay, I have another friend. If that's not crazy enough, I have another friend from Bible college um, who, get this, with the blessing and support of his church and his family, including his parents, he went for almost a year with a close brother, and they traveled the country living on the streets. And they ministered the gospel wherever they went. They trusted God for his provision. And they actually visited churches in all the cities they went as homeless people to research and investigate how does the church in America respond to homeless people. And in fact, if you're interested in that story, they're... um, they wrote a book about it. It's called Under the Overpass, A Journey of Faith on the Streets of America. It even has a, a foreword by Francis Chan. Okay? So, you know it's good. Um, so, these are two kind of radical examples, but it's similar, isn't it? It's a, a similar expression of this type of short-term sending, living by faith, stepping out of the normal, and the comfortable to be on mission uh, with God. Here's a, just maybe a less radical example from my life. It's just a simple way that I have sought to do this. So we, we bought a house going on four years ago um, in a neighborhood in East Portland. We're just a, a, a couple blocks from David Douglas High School. We didn't really know where we would be li- living. We didn't know kind of the significance of this neighborhood. We just prayed, God, provide a house that I can afford. And the, my, when my wife walks in the door, she doesn't cry. Like, that's what we're going for, really low bar. Um, and, and God provided a, a great house. And we're, we're having breakfast our, our first week, and, and we're seeing all these kids walking by going to school, and, and they have head coverings on. Or, or there's people with golden robes and red dots in their forehead, or a, a guy with a big black robe and a Coptic cross swinging around his neck. And we're just like, what in the world what kind of neighborhood do we move into? Like, I thought we lived in Portlandia. Like, this is not, this is not white hipster Portland. Where are we? And as we began to get to know our neighborhood and our neighbors, we realized that this is, we're in this really hot spot for refugees and internationals. In fact, there's over 70 languages spoken at, at David Douglas High School. It's, the, it's one of the few zip codes that's majority minority in the city of Portland. And so I, did, I just began, sometimes two by two, sometimes on my own, going, going for prayer walks in my community. And I would walk around. And, and see the apartment complexes where there's refugees and, and, and immigrants. I would go down to a soccer field and, and meet a bunch of Somali or Nepali kids playing soccer, and I would just jump into the soccer game. Um, or um, with, with others, I've gone two by two to apartment complexes, and we've just knocked on doors and asked to pray for people. Um, and, and it's amazing, especially in a non-Western culture, how opening 
how open and, and uh, welcoming uh, people are to invite you. And, oh, you're knocking randomly on my door. Come in, have tea. I'm so happy. Come talk to me. Like, like it's not, not our normal kind of Western experience, but that, that's just the reality of, of more of a shame, honor, hospitality culture. And it's, and it's been awesome experiencing that and, and seeing God, God work. And where there's sickness, We'll, we'll pray for the sick. Where there's, where there's some maybe demonic oppression and fear, we'll, we'll pray for the comfort and, and, and healing and the peace that Christ brings. Uh, one, one particular encounter that um, will ever kind of stick out in my memory was um, a visit I, I, I took to a local mosque. A lot of the mosques in our community are, um, you, you would say, um, non-decorated. They're, in fact, you wouldn't know they're a, they're a mosque unless you, you knew people there. Um, you would just drive by them every day not realizing it. And so there, there's a mosque in my community on, on Stark near, near 122nd. And, and so it was over Ramadan, which is a, a time of fasting and feasting for my, my Muslim neighbors. And I wanted to go visit there um, and, and share an iftar meal to, to break fast with them and just get to know my, my Muslim neighbors. And, and I, I had a, an intern from Multnomah that I wanted to, to bring with me. And, and, but I wanted to kind of check it out first to see if it was a good, uh, good situation for that. And so I, I, I drive into the parking lot and, and I get out of my, my truck. And, and just as I get out, there's, there's four men coming out of the, uh, this office building uh, where the mosque is in. And and um, they're all wearing traditional uh, Pakistani garb. So just imagine white, uh, like one-piece gowns to the, down to the floor with little hats, like little white circular hats with embroidery and designs on them. And there's two younger guys, maybe my age, with long black beards and two older guys with long white beards. Um, so they, they come out of this, this door. And I walk up and I'm just like, Assalamu alaikum. And they say, Wa alaikum salam. And we just start talking. And, and I have a lot, of, a lot of Muslim and Arabic friends, and so we just, we just hit it off, and it's, it's really casual. And, and, and they say, well, hey, come on back uh, later on tonight. We'd love to have you uh, share a meal with us. And I'm like, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, can I bring a friend? And they're like, oh, sure. And, and I say, oh, well, what are you doing now? Uh, what are you guys up to? And they say, oh, we're just going to go for a walk. And I'm like, hey, I, I, I have some free time. Can I join you for your walk? Um, and so they say, sure, you can join us. And and um, this is near, uh, if you know Stark, is near Ventura Park. And so I imagine they're going to just start walking down the street to go to Ventura Park. But instead, they, the four of them get into a minivan that's parked there on the, in, the, in the parking lot. And so I have a decision to make. Do I say, ah, on second thought, I, I don't want to go for this walk. Um, or, or do I say, okay, jump right in. Let's, let's go for this walk. Um, and so I don't want to be offensive, and I, I got nothing to fear. Um, so I, I jump in, and then they close the door, and we, we start driving down the road. And, and then one of the older gentlemen says, as we drive by Ventura Park, he says, ah, actually, I don't want to go for a walk. Let's just drive. And they're like, okay. And I'm thinking, okay. Um, and, and so we're, we're sitting there, and we're driving down Stark, and one of the younger guys, they, they have the, the best English, he turns to me and says, total deadpan face you have been kidnapped by terrorists. And so, now, I, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of Muslim friends, and I'm just like, whatever, man. Give me a break. No, no, I haven't. And still totally serious. He says, no, you have been kidnapped by terrorists. It's like, oh, come on. I'm like, it's okay, brother. No problem, no problem. And I'm thinking, hmm, 
How fast are we driving? Can I jump out of this van if I need to? Um, and, and then a third time, again, totally serious. No, you have been kidnapped by terrorists. And then he cracks a smile and says, at least that's what Fox News would say. <laughs> and they all crack up laughing. And I'm kind of like, ha, 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 that's really funny. That, I'm just like, wow, that is funny. You're right. They would say that, wouldn't they? And it, <laughs> I'm like, do you say that to all your Christian friends? I mean, this is a good prank to pull. So, so we, did, we ended up driving around the city, and I, I showed them Rocky Butte, and we had a great time connecting. Turns out the older men were visiting from Pakistan. One of them was, was giving the main message at the, at the mosque that evening, and, and I think he was a, uh, a professor in po- post-doctorate physics at some university in Pakistan. Another, the younger guys, one guy was a, a Wall Street banker from New York coming to visit. Another guy is a, a, a medical doctor or surgeon who lives in, in, in East Portland, and... Um, and they're great guys, and we just had a great conversation, and then we went back later that night, and since then we've, I've developed a good relationship um, with these, uh, particularly the guy that, you know, pulled the prank on me. And, and, and like a year later, I asked him, I'm like, hey, do you remember that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, you've given me some great stories to tell, by the way. And, and I'm like, but what were you thinking? He's like, you know, we thought you were homeless, actually. <laughs> and so we, we thought we should feed the guy. And, and we thought, yeah, he's got guts to get in the car with us, but sure, why not? Why not? Um, so you never know what's, what's going on and what people's perspectives are. Um, anyway, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, this, this guy's crazy. Or maybe there's some radical risk-taking adventure that God's put into your heart, but you're unsure whether you should step out and do it, right? Starting something new, trying something new, sharing your faith with a, a coworker that you just haven't been able to, to do yet, going to the mission field, going next door to, to share Jesus and bring some cookies, whatever, small or big, whatever it might be, maybe it's in your heart, and you just haven't had the guts or the nerve to do it. I would just say this, one life, to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Press into the community of believers around you. Find those who can confirm, because some of our ideas are just crazy, right? Some will meant that. Some ideas are crazy. But so we're looking for confirmation. We're looking for support, but we don't do these things together. Now, if you're like many people, the stories are inspiring, like I said, but they're also intimidating. And I can understand that. And so I think our, our call to mission, it is an identity issue. It's foundationally an issue of identity and motivation and heart. But then, even when you have that, and you're like, I do love Jesus. I want to tell people about him. Sometimes we just have no idea what to do. And we've never actually been taught the, the, like, the how-to practical tactics and of how do I actually share my faith? How do I go and interact across cultures and do these things? So... What I want to do is walk us through this text and just take a principle and an application and just get really, really practical so that you feel like, hey, I, I, I could do that. That makes sense. Okay? So that, that's how we're going um, to continue and then close. The first one is this. Go out two by two. You, you see that here in the text. By telling us to go two by two, Jesus is saying that we need friends more than finances. 
Right? We need community, accountability, encouragement, and camaraderie and mission more than we need programs and provisions. It's kind of backwards, isn't it? Usually we think we've got to get all the programs and the, and the money and, and all those details in place, and then we, if, if we need, well, we'll find someone to join us. You say, no, the relationship is central. The community is central. Some of the most powerful kind of friendship illustrations that I know of come from the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Pastor Daniel preaches sometimes. So you probably get this a fair bit. I'm sorry. Um, but, but think of, right, think of Sam Gamgee going with Frodo to the, right, the dark pit of doom and going with him to the end. Or, or, or think of Legolas the elf and Gimli the dwarf, right? These two unlikely friends standing back to back in battle, right? So there's this camaraderie, this friendship. In fact, in Tolkien's Middle Earth, that's one of his main points that he's, that he's, he's driving at. That in, in all the great wars of the mighty, right, that's not what overcomes evil. Rather, it's the simple loyalty of a friend that overcomes the power of Sauron. We don't need to be the great and mighty in battle. We just need to be and have a loyal friend and to do the call and burden that God has put on our life. And we see it in the scriptures again and again, right? Uh, a David and Jonathan, a, a Paul and Timothy. So that's the principle. Go two by two. And then a simple application is be a Sam to a Frodo who has a burden and call from the Lord. Or if you have that burden and call from the Lord, find a Sam. Maybe you already have him and you just got to convince him. Come on, we got something to do. Let's go do it. And, and if you say, you know, honestly, I don't have friends like that, then I would just say, press into the community that's around you. There's a whole lot of lonely people, right, in this world, probably in this room. And, and you're you might be sitting next to them. So press into community. Join a, join a community group. Find a way to connect and grow those kind of friendships that you can go to the pit of doom together. So second principle, bring the kingdom in word and in deed. Right? This idea of lifting the curse, finding practical ways to relieve suffering both naturally and even supernaturally. It might be as simple as meeting the practical needs of a family, helping them move, helping them get a ride to the hospital. Right? But it doesn't have to, have to stop there. God loves to show his power, especially in mission. In fact, I think one of the main reasons that we don't see manifestations of God's power in our life very often is because we're not on God's mission. And when we get on that mission, he loves to show up. A simple, miraculous answer to prayer or a prophetic word does wonders at preparing an unbelieving heart to receive the message of the gospel. Now, on the other side, many of us even just struggle with the words, right, of sharing the gospel. How do we share it? Especially with people that are different than us. So I didn't grow up in church culture. Um, and, but, so I, I can, I can kind of relate to, to people from my own culture and background uh, outside the church, but like when it comes to international people or my Muslim neighbors, I grew up in Hawaii. I don't, I don't know why it's a great place, but there's just no Muslims there. It has, they haven't figured it out yet. 
It's a great place. Well, but, so I had to learn from scratch. I had to learn how to love my neighbors who were different than me. So here's one simple method to do that. And it's, it's, we see it in the apostles. We see it in the life of Jesus again and again. It's the idea of storytelling. And it's particularly relevant for people that are, are from more preliterate cultures, right? Non-Western cultures. But it's also relevant in our day and age, right? Where like the main kind of, I mean, uh, political um, writing that we read is, comes from Twitter, um, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, uh, we're not getting any kind of Federalist paper. This is complex political dialogue. It's like, well, we follow Twitter and we understand the political situation. It's, it's a lot simpler. In fact, it's post-literate. And so storytelling is a great way to, to talk and to communicate. So a simple application is Share stories from the Gospels with your friends who are not yet believers. Right? It might be the, the story of the prodigal son, or the Good Samaritan, or Jesus and the woman at the well. In, a, in a, a simple, casual way, you can share a story from God's Word. You can speak powerful truth. And uh, this is a, um, I, I've heard it said about like, Arabic culture, that you can say to an, an Arabic person in a story, what if you said to him flat out, he'd get angry and want to kill you, <laughs> right? And, and so in storytelling, we can say things boldly um, that can be more easily received than in just kind of normal, you need to repent. Um, so, and then simple questions. You share a story, then you ask questions like this. What does this story teach us about God? What does this story teach us about people? And then a good final question is, if it was true, what would need to change in our life? And, and you'll be amazed at what kind of conversations that opens and how it provides a context for the person to interact with the Word of God and with His Spirit. Okay, so the second principle, right? Bring the, uh, the gospel and the kingdom through word and deed. The third principle, leave your stuff at home. Leave your stuff at home. When we do ministry, I think too often it can be a one-way relationship, right? Of us giving to other people, right? But the problem with that is it can lead to dependency from them, right? And codependency for us. We like being needed. But here's what, here's what happens. Here's what I think is so significant in what he's saying in, in telling the disciples to leave all their stuff at home is that when we go and we have some vulnerability and we, are, we more tangibly feel our need for others, right, that creates a context for genuine friendship. Isn't it true that all your real friends, there's a give and take? And how else, what a better context for the gospel to be alive and to be shared than friendship? And so leave your stuff at home. Come with some vulnerability to these relationships. And and experience interdependence, right? Additionally, the world is not very impressed with our big budgets and our big buildings, right? They're impressed by a big God who does amazing things as we live by faith and prayer. And when they see his provision in your life, they say, wow, there must be something to this. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of George Mueller. Right? He's a great pastor and prayer warrior, and he understood this. 
right? He describes his supreme passion as being to display with open proofs that God can be trusted with the practical affairs of life. Okay? The practical affairs of life. He's well known for the establishment of an orphanage. And we need to listen to this. This is a, a quote from him where he talks about the purpose behind that orphanage and why he ran it the way he did. Here's that quote. He says, This then was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. The first and primary object of the work was, and still is, that God might be magnified by the fact, and here it is, that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by faith and prayer, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers whereby it may be seen. Here's the purpose. That God is faithful still and hears prayer still. So it wasn't just, oh, I'm running an orphanage and so I'm ministering to these orphans. But the very existence of the orphanage had a greater purpose of proving to the watching world that God hears prayer and God is real and he shows up in in the real little practical affairs of life. So here's an application for us. Ask God to lead you in doing something that will utterly fail unless God is in it. Like He just has to show up for it to work. And do that thing in such a way that he gets the most glory for your success and not you. So that's the next principle, right? Is leave your stuff at home. Let God get the glory as the provider in our life. The next one is embrace the hospitality of a person of peace. And we we see that where he talks about going to a house and staying there. So hospitality is important in shame honor cultures. That's why these instructions wouldn't have felt as weird in that culture. Okay, I I admit, like the stories about going down to Mexico, like that feels weird. That feels extreme. This wouldn't have felt as extreme for them. Okay. Hospitality is just a high value in honor shame cultures like this one. Um, kind of my family's first encounter with this type of hospitality came when we were uh, visiting some Saudi neighbors. They lived just across the street from us. I was going for a run one night, and I, I met these guys outside their house. And I'm like, hi, good to meet you. And, and I invited them, oh, come over for dinner. And they said, no, no, you come to our house. Bring your family. We will cook for you. We will cook kapsa. Oh, so good. And I'm like, Okay. And so we, we go over there. Now, like any good American parent, we have taught our kids, when they eat, what do they do with the food on their plate? You finish it, right? You eat it all. <laughs> Watch out if you do that in a Middle Eastern context. So as we're eating, right, and the, the hospitality, these are single guys, right? So you, you think if anyone in a culture doesn't understand hospitality, it's the single guys, right? So but these guys... I mean, I think we're a good representation of, of their culture and their hospitality. So they cook this big, beautiful chicken. It's on this bed of rice. And, and they realized there wasn't enough food. So one of the guys even kind of just quietly disappeared. And we're like, where's, where's Mohammed? And they're like, I don't know. And we found out later, well, he just realized there wasn't enough food. And so he left and didn't eat. That's one thing that's, that's a little weird, right? A little different. And then as, as we're eating... The, our, our host, he wasn't hovering, but he, he ate 
after we ate, and he kept his eyes on each one of our plates. Now, I got a lot of kids. There's a lot of plates to keep their eyes on. And, and he's watching, and as a plate got near to being empty, he quickly got up and from the main serving dish served out more food. So just picture my little girl, who's probably at the time six years old, Anna Marie, and she's eating her food. And I, I don't remember if we were eating with our hands or not, but they eat their, their meal with their, their hands. She's eating the chicken and rice, and she loves it. It's really good. And then just as she's about to be done, another pile comes on the plate. <laughs> she, she eats it. And then another pile, and she looks up at her mom. Mom, do I have to eat this? <laughs> and we later learned that, well, no, actually in that culture, you leave some food on the plate to say, I am so satisfied with your hospitality and your meal that I cannot eat anymore. And if you have an empty plate, it is their responsibility as the host to keep dishing out the food. Okay? So it's a different way of looking at it, but it's just this high value of showing honor to the guest. So in this context, it would have been an honor to host a religious teacher. And, and what he's telling them is to go to a single home, and a home that opens up their family to you, go there and go deep with them. Don't just go from door to door and go broad and, and share the gospel and sprinkle it everywhere. He says, no, go deep with a single family. And in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, this idea is, is communicated, but he talks about the idea of finding a, what he calls a person of peace and staying with them. Now, when it, when it comes to just missional living and practice, I think this idea cannot be overemphasized, the value of finding this person of peace, okay? So I'm going to give you just three practical uh, things to look for. A person of peace, this, this home that as you go out, you're looking for to, to minister in and stay in, is someone with receptivity, reputation, and referral, okay? Receptivity. The person of peace is someone who God has already prepared to receive you and the gospel. They have an open home and an open heart, and they invite you into their home and into your life, into their life. That's receptivity. The second one is reputation. The person of peace is well known by their family and friends, either because they have great honor and influence in their community, and so when they begin to follow Jesus and receive that gospel in you, they share that influence with others, or they're full of shame and notoriety in that community. Think of the woman at the well or the demoniac. So that when they, when they encounter Jesus and their life is transformed, people notice. They're like, dude, this guy was crazy. He was naked in the tombs. Like, it was bad. And now he's in his right mind, clothed, and talking about Jesus. Okay, let's find out who this Jesus guy is, right? So, the second one, there's reputation. And then finally, referral. A person of peace passes the gospel through the network of relationships that they already have. And as you work with them, you gain an audience in those networks and relationships. But still, through all of that, they are the ones that are able to bring the gospel into what we call their oikos, right? That's Greek for household. So, a simple application for this principle of embracing the hospitality of a person of peace is just to ask God in prayer to bring you that person that he has already prepared, right? Like so, so often, we, I mean, we kind of just, just keep 
going looking for someone ready and, and there's rejection or there's hardness. He's just saying, hey, go where there's openness. Go through the open door. Don't just keep knocking on all the closed doors. So pray for that open door. And then as you go out and live your life, wherever you're going, keep your eyes out for it. And the last principle from this text is to shake off the dust from your feet. So one of the themes, we see this in chapter 6, right? One of the themes of this, this chapter is gospel rejection. Last week you heard about Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, right? He's, Jesus is preparing his disciples here. You're going to be rejected sometimes. And then we'll read later in, the, in this chapter that John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. That's like the ultimate form of rejection, right? So, so there's a whole lot of gospel rejection going on. And honestly, I think that's one of the main reasons that, as Christians, we are shy in sharing our faith. We don't like being rejected. It just doesn't feel good, does it? And Jesus is preparing us for it. He's saying, you will be rejected. Be ready for it. And when it happens, you know what? Just brush it off. Don't take it personally, right? People rejected the prophets. People rejected John the Baptist. They rejected Jesus they're going to reject you sometimes. Because, you know, honestly, you're not more likable than Jesus, right? You can't make the gospel more attractive than he did. So you just kind of just relax. Don't take it personally. People will reject you. And so in that application, be free to tell Jesus stories. Be free to talk about what he's done in your life. And many people won't want to hear it. But there will be one who like in the, in the parable of the soils is the good soil and that, that seed bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so in conclusion, mission is not first about what we do or where we go. It's first about who we are. When we know deep in our being that we are desired and loved by Christ and that he has first called us to be with him then we cannot help but go with him on mission. And we cannot help but share with others what he's done in our lives. And we don't do that somehow to win his approval, but in that simple desire to know him more. And as we, if we look back through each of these, these principles, they lead us to know Christ more, right? The first one, in, that, uh, in going out two by two, we experience the depth of Christian community that only comes when we together dedicate ourselves to something bigger than us, right? In going alone, we experience his perfect provision when we are in need. As we go and share the gospel for, through word and deed, we get to see again the power of the gospel in, in someone's heart where they realize it for the first time. And that faith is awakened and their lives are transformed. We get to see, in answer to prayer, God's power showing up. Or someone's world just being totally rocked by some divine providence, coincidence, just prophetic thing. And they're just like, whoa, where did that come from? And we get to share in that work. And then finally, we get to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. As we experience the same rejection and hardship that he endured. We get a share in that life of God. And that's why we go out on mission, to know God, to know Christ, and make him known. So we are, 
together. We are the loved and sent people of God. Let's live that out together. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you uh, that you've called us to be with you. We're not always very good at doing and going. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes we're not even good at being, just being with you. Uh, but that is an invitation that all of us can receive, to come and be with you. And then I ask that you would give us a boldness and a courage to go out, to take risks, to be vulnerable for the sake of the gospel, and that you would give us great courage as we go and do that in simple and profound ways. Thank you, Jesus, for your gospel. Amen.